podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. This episode of Red Inca, we talk about Barney Gibson, who was the youngest man to play first-class cricket in England. He played for Yorkshire at 15, and then at 19, he retired to run nightclubs. But we also discuss Mark Broadhurst, another young gun Yorkshire player who had an early end to his career and who spoke up after reading about Gibson. So I got on the person that kind of united both of them. Nick Friends, journalist. We discuss Yorkshire, team prodigies, parenting, life after cricket, the yips, retirement, and the nightclub chain, Tiger Tiger. So, Nick, when I saw the Barney Gibson piece, I was like, oh, that's so annoying. So I spent (laughs) about three months, it must have been the year he retired, contacting people. You have no idea how many times I spoke to people who worked at the Leeds Tiger Tiger. (laughs) in that time trying to get message i mean clearly now looking back on it barney gibson did not want to talk and wasn't ready but i was like there has to be something deeper here than what has happened for those who don't know barney gibson was a wicket keeper with yorkshire played one game was he the youngest yorkshire cricketer or the youngest first class cricketer he was the youngest person to play first class cricket in the uk yeah so yes and yes and yes (laughs) And we should say that's only because there's no women's first class cricket because Kate Cross told me yeah. yesterday that she played for Lancashire when she was 13. Yes. Which feels like she's just showing off a little bit. Uh, but <laughs> Barney Gibson was an incredibly talented young wicketkeeper for Yorkshire who played senior cricket when he was 15. He also was, was he with Leeds United, if I got the right football team? So he'd been with Leeds United from the age of six or seven in their academy set up and played with, so back then he'd played with Ollie McBurney, who's now at Sheffield United and... You know, when you're six, young, that's not to say we've gone to play for Leeds, but he was a very talented child sportsman or sports child. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's such an interesting life. I mean, he talks about like, you know, playing with, uh, you know, Gary Balance and uh, Ajmal yeah. Shazad. Tim Bresden would yeah. have been there at the same time. You know, he mentioned Jason Gillespie in, in your piece, Paul Fabres, mm. um, Harry Kuehl. Yeah, it's a ridiculous... Yeah, Harry, Harry Kuehl, Mark yeah. Duca. Mark Viduka, you know, sorry, I only know Australian footballs. And even then, not, say, not really. <laughs> <laughs> and, but even then, like, you're just like, what an incredible childhood from the age of six. And then quite early on with Yorkshire as well. And he did absolutely love cricket and football for a long time, didn't he? Mm. Yeah. And but I think what's so interesting is, and the, actually the reason I found the piece, so inter- the reason I found it so interesting to write and to work on was that I think a lot of us love football and love cricket and love tennis and love whatever sport we love. But there comes a time, I guess, and I'm speaking not as a professional athlete, <laughs> where that love becomes something more and suddenly you're paid for that love and that love is your job and that love is your Monday, but also your Sunday and also your Saturday and everything and then your night and your morning. And, and suddenly that love takes over that freedom that you have as a, and I'm sure we'll get onto this in a bit, but the reason he ultimately left the sport was nothing that Yorkshire had done or that cricket had done or that the teammate or a coach had done or a football coach done. It was purely that he realised that he'd not had that freedom. He'd not sort of had that childhood that, and that it's not a worries me story. He's thrilled with where he's at. He loved his time as a cricketer. He doesn't resent the sport at all, which I think is really interesting and possibly not what I anticipated perhaps going in. But, um, you know, he's always got his fond memories of that love for the sport. But, but as I said, there comes that time when a love for the sport becomes sort of entangled in your life. And, at that age, when you've experienced nothing else, 
suddenly going to going to a nightclub one winter is all it takes for that switch to be flicked to realize god like maybe that love is just love maybe it's not what i want to do with my life i think one thing that people don't understand especially outside of sport is how many people end up in a particular sport that they don't like that much mm. and i think sometimes people resent those sorts of athletes but I remember talking to a coach recently about one of their players and I said, you're going to have to explain this to me, but this guy should be mm. one of the best players in the world and he's not doing anything. And he seems like an intelligent, affable person. And the guy mm. said, yeah, but he's good at cricket. I'm not sure he likes cricket. He wants to be a professional athlete because he likes the lifestyle of being a professional athlete, but he doesn't actually want to do the work of a professional athlete because he doesn't want to go out and bowl a hundred balls mm. a day and, and work on all of his skills. Yeah. And that happens a lot. So um, I suppose what was different with Barney Gibson is he, he played one first class game. He obviously played a lot of sort of second 11 cricket and yeah. other, other forms of cricket for Yorkshire. And then at mm. 19, he looks around and he, I suppose this was my big question at the time that I always wanted answered. And I'm not sure you quite answered it in your piece, but it'd be interesting to see what your opinion is. I couldn't work out how much of it was he got to 19 and went, I'm good but I'm not that good and I might be able to have an okay career or how much of it was I've been doing this my whole life and I want to do something else. I think it was massively the latter in his case. So he'd never scored 100 for Yorkshire until the year before he left the game. Then he scored five, I think, in that year. So he'd been this kid, a 15-year-old keeper, batting number 11 in the first team, obviously just his 15, not because he can bat. But he'd spent four years in the setup up until 19. He'd improved, he'd, his batting had got to where he needed to get to. And I guess, unlike what the story, the, the anecdote you tell there, that he, one of his big things, that he was a massively hard worker. So he was fitness-wise, extremely fit, loved his sports. It was all he'd known since he was at Leeds. So I genuinely don't think there was any consideration given to, I could be this good, but you know I might not get this far. Because actually, as I say, you didn't leave the games of cricket, per se. You sort of left the game because of what you realised was on the outside of it. Yeah. So I, I really don't think it had anything to do with... I might only play for Yorkshire kind of thing. So I actually really don't think that was the way he looked at the game and indeed the way he looked at football as well. So in fact, the reason he moved on from football, really, apart from the fact he was quite a small goalkeeper, was that he came home from a game one day after being on the, playing above his age group, got some pretty, sort of not, not harsh criticism, but got criticised in the way that as a 12, 13-year-old back then, he, he wasn't ready for and he thought, I'm not enjoying this anymore. That was the trigger to move on. So actually, I think... What my big takeaway from it was he had a really healthy outlook on sports and he wasn't prepared to compromise that for what that would mean for the rest of his, not for the rest of his life, but for the rest of what he had in his life at that point. And I, I thought it was really admirable and, and fascinating because as I think, as he said to me a couple of times, but, and as you say there, there are a hundred percent guys who are playing whatever their sport is, who do not like their sport, who don't love their sport, but they're good at it in the same way that everyone in, there'll be people from journalists to lawyers to postmen to to anyone who don't like their job but it's it's the job that, mm. <laughs> that pays the bills that they and that they're, that they're pretty decent at it's it's a really fascinating one isn't it because because the, the narrative we're always given i guess and perhaps you know we probably help portray is that this is the dream lifestyle the dream life and the dream job and who wouldn't want to do it and everyone that's in there is really lucky and is desperate to do it and loves doing what they do and i'm sure in the, for the most part that is generally the case Mm. But, I, but it, I thought it was fascinating to find someone, especially his age, that sort of understood that there was more to it. 
He basically discovers partying, and I don't mean that in a bad <laughs> yeah. way. But for those of you who don't know, when I was talking about Tiger Tiger before, that is the worst chain of nightclubs <laughs> that I'm aware of in the UK. If there are worse nightclubs out there than Tiger Tiger, that's okay. You don't need to educate me. I'm never going to go to any of them. It's okay. I've been to a Tiger Tiger a few times. It's not for me. But essentially, I remember talking to another cricketer, a very professional cricketer, who went all the way through the system, did everything right, you know, didn't drink too much when he shouldn't drink too much, ate the right foods, did everything that his cricket board always wanted of him and was a dutiful soldier. Then he retired and he was out at a pub with a friend and he said to his friend, do you have a joint? And his friend's like, you don't smoke. And he's like, yeah, yeah, I know, but I've never had a joint. I'd like to have a joint. That is not the most typical story. I mean, I think Chris Gale would probably uh, have a slightly different story in his life. And, uh, you know, there are many different athletes who do different things. But the point is that there is a sort of, if you do everything right, and it sounds like Barney Gibson always, that was his big thing of, of doing everything right, following it through. I can imagine walking into a Leeds Tiger Tiger at 1am and just being like, this is not like uh, being yelled at mm. by a Yorkshire coach. Exactly. Suddenly you're a far cry from Headingley or just academy sport. And, and I think the other part of that actually is that I would guess without much evidence, because of what you hear and read and are told about professional sport and all you need to do to get to the level required, I would guess you just, you grow up and almost ban things that, you know, that maybe don't need to be banned, but there is so much focus on getting everything right, fitness-wise, nutrition-wise, sleep pattern-wise, everything that comes with elite sport now, that perhaps it is easy to sort of say to yourself, right, well, I can't be doing any of that. When certainly, you know, I was talking to Cricketer a few days ago who won the championship about, you know, about a decade ago. And he said one of the big things that their success was founded on was sitting in the hotel bar after a day's play of a championship game and having a beer and talking about the game and talking about what they'd learned. And, and perhaps you learn that once you're in the game, once you're established, but, but perhaps when you are the kids coming through the system and you are doing everything you can to hit that level, Maybe you can take that to the extreme where you exclude things from your life rather than moderate them, if you know what I mean. I do. One thing I would say is, though, that he taught, uh, uh, you know, Gibson in your piece talks a lot about freedom. There isn't mm. a lot of freedom in an organized beer with your bosses <laughs> around and your seniors yes. around. Do you know what I mean? So yeah, even absolutely. then, I mean, his big thing was freedom, wasn't it? And he goes off to Spain to learn how to run nightclubs and, and all this yeah. sort of stuff after being in Tiger Tiger. And so, you know, six months in my bay, three years in the nightlife industry, couple of years in recruitment and has now set up his own couple of businesses, one of which is in sort of sustainable active wear and with a big focus on mental health side of it as well, actually. And but it's interesting, he doesn't really play club cricket anymore. He played club cricket in 2019, he didn't play last year, and I don't think he was particularly planning on playing this year. And that's not to say he hates cricket. That's and he was bit like he's big on, you know, even with Yorkshire, he credits Yorkshire massively with the opportunity they gave him, with the help that the guys in the academy gave him. And also I guess for us, well I guess record wise, one first class game Sounds massive, is massive, she's 15. But yeah, as you, as you said earlier, he had played a lot of second team cricket. And actually, with the way the two stuff works, often you're playing with a lot of the guys you had played in the first team with anyway. So it wasn't like he was chucked into a new sport. But it is still, that doesn't make it any less fascinating, but it did make him more comfortable at the time. He was still there catching balls. It was just Ajmal Shazad rather than, you know, whoever he'd normally be facing up to in the twos. But he had, he had Gary Bounce alongside him at first slip. And so there are subtle differences. But that side of it's really interesting, isn't it? I mean, He's got no problem or gripe or any axe to grind with the game at all. It was just circumstances. I also wonder just, you know, how much... I remember talking to Barry Cowan, the uh, tennis player, once, and we were talking mm. about why so many women retire so early. And he was saying that tennis is one of those sports that you 
fundamentally have to love because it is so repetitive. And if you're a bowler or a batter, there's a little bit of fun involved in batting and bowling. I know <laughs> yes. that there are some wicket keepers who like wicket keeping, but I wonder if you are spending as much time as he would have on wicket keeping. If there is a certain point of I've caught all the balls, I, I was a goalkeeper before. <laughs> I caught those balls. Then you brought me across here, and you made me catch these balls. I've caught all the balls that I need to catch. And the other thing that I was thinking about, especially you know, I'm a father, and my two young boys are playing. You know, sort of just starting their sport life. There's a certain thing like, and this is actually less to do with sport, but my older boy started playing the cello and he got quite good at the cello. And then he sort of came to us and said, I know it's going okay, but no, I'm not sure I love the cello. And like, that's the first time he sort of said it. I said, we had the big conversation of, look, if you learn the cello, you're probably going to be able to learn any instrument you want after this. You're already halfway towards learning the cello. If you come back to us in a year's time and you say to us, cello is just not for you, then we'll find another instrument and that's fine. And I'm sure that he's already starting to make his own opinions with sport. It's very hard for me to get him to play football or every time we go out in the backyard, he wants to play cricket, right? That's his big thing. And his brother wants to play yeah. every sport. What I've just described then is just a little bit of investment in my kid's time. And I don't really care what sport they play or what mm. instrument they play. If I was Barney Gibson's parents, though, where he had played <laughs> professional cricket at 15, where he'd already burned through one sport by the time he was 12 or 13 <laughs> as well, where they had probably driven mm. him up and down the country, where they'd probably done everything they could for him. What a thing for a 19-year-old to say to his parents, and look, don't worry, I disappointed my parents far more at 19 than he did, but <laughs> what a thing to be able to go to your parents and go, do you know what? I'm going to go run the mm. local Tiger Tiger and I'm going to give up my contract with Yorkshire. Mind blown. I think it's one of the most interesting things about the story, which is having the wherewithal and the courage to do that. As I say, like 10 years down, which is, yeah, 10 years down the line for his, for his debut, which is, yeah, when I spoke to him a couple of months ago, he that was the sort of learned with time. He'd sort of come to realise the investment that had got into him for his parents. And one of the things he said was like, like when he when success comes business wise, one of the things he wants to do is is to make is to reimburse them. You know, whether that's financially or emotionally or anyway, with for what they put into his career. And I think a couple of the comments on the piece, you know, talked about this highlights problems back with bad parenting, but also to defend you know the Gibson family. Frankly, like, I think actually more accurately, it shows how all encompassing elite sports is and how much expectation is placed on you from everyone, whether from the coaches, from everyone involved at the club, the, the, you know, the, the club and the prestige of the club, that, you know, whichever club it is that you join. Leeds and Yorkshire, the two, you know, he, he's a Yorkshireman. He played for the two biggest sporting institutions in his county, in a county that's massively proud of their teams. Like, I think it's very easy to say, well, the parents should have done this and should have done that. But actually, to turn that round, you'd say everyone he's known, friends, family, friends, teachers, school, wherever he's been, they will have, he will have been placed on, not placed on a pedestal, but mm. people would have been like, this is the kid. This is, at one point he was, this is the kid who plays for Leeds. Then he's, this is the kid who plays for Yorkshire. Then it's, this is the kid who broke that record at Yorkshire. It must be a lot to take in. And it must be very hard not to fall into the trap of investing everything you and your family have got into it. I don't so much mean financially that. I mean doing those drives yeah. from Yorkshire to, to Sussex away, to Durham away, to trials here and trials there and, because the end result of a career in professional sport is built up as this extraordinary sort of pot of gold at the end of it, isn't it? So I'd be fascinated to know how you go about that any other way, if you know what I mean. Yeah, and, and also there's a certain point where 
if the story comes out and he said, I kept trying to quit and my parents kept pushing me, that's a completely different story than the one that he's put out here. Mm. And he also, he went on to 19. So it's not like he quit when he was yeah. 16 or something. It was interesting. His, I think his relationship with his father struggled for a bit afterwards because there was a bit of a, I think it was sort of a, a lack of understanding. Yeah. I mean, a lack of understanding and I don't know quite what that entailed, but in terms of taking a bit of time, I guess, for both parties to appreciate that decision. But now their relationship is massively, massively stronger now for the whole, for, for everything he went through in sports, but also for that bit coming out of it as well. So um, I think that's interesting. There must be a, a bit of time that follows kids leaving academy sport, whether of their own volition or because they're released, for the entire family. Because suddenly it's an identity thing, isn't it? That we mm. tell that people, that, that sport is, is learning to talk about so much more now, where... And especially if you're a kid, and especially if you're a kid who's decided not to go to university or to, or to continue your studies or has dropped out of school early for this, suddenly you're left with no identity, with no qualifications, with, with nothing beyond the fact that you are a former cricketer. And one thing, in fact, actually the bit that I thought that I'd never thought about that he mentioned in the piece is the word retirement. So he never saw it as retirement. He saw it as, right, and this goes back to the love thing, I guess, right at the start. He saw this as, right, I love it, but I'm going to do something else now. That was it. It was more of a changing job with him, wasn't it? Exactly. It was this a change, was my job was a when I was young, job. and now I'm yeah. going to go get another job. And it's interesting, he played a very big part in his leaving statement with Yorkshire, which nowhere mentions the word retirement, which mentioned, which talks about pursuing other opportunities, which is what it, which is what it is when you're, when you're still a teenager. I remember that very clearly at the time, mm. in fact, and that was one of the things I was very interested in because he seemed to be, yeah. he didn't seem like a broken 19-year-old, and I've certainly come across quite a few of those, uh, you know, in professional cricket. Mm. He felt like someone who was just like, it's just not for me, you know, and yeah. I'm going to leave. And, you know, it, it's very mm. interesting. Actually, the biggest struggle he had was seeing that word written down because he was a 19-year-old kid who'd, I don't think his exact quote to me was something like, I wish I had the money to retire mm. to. Because I think to us, when at our age, and I'm 20, I'm a year older than him, I'm 26, and the idea of retirement, as much as the, in elite sports, it means it does effectively pursue, pursue other opportunities because your legs have gone. So mm. a 19-year-old kid, retirement means buy a villa in Mallorca, go and put your feet up for 50 years. So being told that you are being retired, and at this point he was still playing club cricket and crucially still loved the game. I think that idea of retirement, and it is just the word we use because there are so few stories like this. It's the word we use when people finish with cricket or finish with sport. In fact, I thought it was really interesting the way that word almost affected him more than that entire, the rest of that process of leaving the club was the external view that he was retired or being retired, or as I say, sort of like being laid out of the pasture kind of thing. There was a footballer I wrote about recently uh, who has now managed a football club in France, which is uh, called the Flat Earth Club. And it's all about, uh, it's all in, in because of the conspiracy. I won't get into that. But he left the game, played for one of the top Spanish famous teams. This is how much I football. And, uh, you know, when he was 22, he stepped away and he gave this incredible speech as well. I think the guys who have done that, rather than being phased out of the system, are very, very interesting. Yeah, and Talk commendable. To follow that up, you then get a Facebook comment on this piece from a cricketer called Mark mm. Broadhurst, who I'd never heard of, to be fair, before this. And in fact, I'm not sure I saw the original piece. I think Goffey might have tweeted you. John Norman shared it and then Darren Goff saw it. So you're sort of your talk sport possibly. Yeah. Talk sport was all over this article, man. This is the most talk sport. I mean, Gareth Batty probably knows him as well. I'm sure he played <laughs> yeah, with right. him. So Mark Broadhurst at 16 plays for Yorkshire. He's a seam bowler, relatively quick, nips it around a little bit in a period of time where Yorkshire are producing a lot of high-quality players, and he was a star for England under-19s. Talk me through what happened sort of after that period. 
so it's a really tough story. It's a funny one. It's almost the, um, I thought it was fascinating that Mark got in touch because also fascinating that he felt that Barney's story resonated because actually, whereas Barney's is sort of really uplifting and there's no real sad side to it, you know, everyone's a winner kind of thing. Like, you know, Yorkshire move on. They had Johnny Bairstow keeping wicket anyway. Gerald Brophy was still there. And Barney goes on and, you know, loves the life that he, you know, that he lives now and, and loves the, the time that he had post time whereas mark has this sorry not retirement that's that's just done exactly what I'm, <laughs> post pursuing other opportunities and yeah post leaving the game and then whereas mark's story is much tougher i mean it's funny you say relatively quick obviously i wasn't born but um i would guess he's quicker than relatively quick because as you said it's one thing keeping wickets 15 year olds and standing 25 yards when catch the ball but actually being deemed selectable as an opening bowler at 16 years old in first class cricket Everyone I spoke to, actually, the most gratifying part of this has been, I think, for Mark as well, who never told the story at all and sort of buried it, was people that he played with in those early years. And he sort of tried to move cricket on in his life so he could get on with his life. But for him to have the number of comments from people reminding him of how good he was, I think it's been really, really nice for me as well. Because as I say, I, never, I wasn't born when he played. And Mark deliberately overwrote the only footage he had of himself bowling because he wanted to escape he stuck a Tiger documentary on top. It was him bowling at Michael Vaughan at Lillyshaw, I think. It was a 15, 16-year-old. But he just didn't want to, to be reminded of it. So his story, effectively, was he struggled at Yorkshire with the environment, as I think a lot of... And this isn't just Yorkshire-specific at all. This is, I think, county cricket in the early 90s, the sort of trainee coming through was not the easiest place in the world. Well, I should say that I recently did a podcast with Gareth Batty about Yorkshire cricket, and he sort of singled it out as being, and to be fair with Batsy's played for every county, yeah. I think, twice. <laughs> so I think there was certainly mm. a specific thing about Yorkshire cricket at that point. Abs yeah, I think he was a pretty innocent teenager, and he struggled with the environment and struggled with how cutthroat it was and how the divide between junior and senior and... And being a pretty innocent kid trying trying to come through and being sort of the leading player in the second team, playing for England under-19s, coming back from there and finding himself pretty stifled. Like, he was the guy in England under-19s. Him and Glenn Chappell opened the bowling together. They played against Gilchrist, Shandapal, Astle, Vittori, Damien Martin, Chiminda Vaz. He played in England under-19s when he was 16. He played with Vaughan, Ronnie Arani, Glenn Chappell, I mentioned, Mark Butcher, and he stood out. Like this was, mm. I think a big thing with this story was that he wasn't some bitter kid who didn't make it. You know, he made it. He played first class cricket at 16, left Yorkshire at 19, by which time he'd had the yips for a year. And tracing it back, I don't know how much the story you want me to tell at once because there's, there's so much of it, but he traces the yips back to sort of losing his confidence as this kid at Yorkshire who just couldn't, who just found the environment very tough and found his treatment very harsh. And, and there's no doubt that both of those things you know, with the case, I mean, as, as you say, as you say from, from swing to Gareth, I mean, it's, I think it, that was the environment. And he tells one story of being, being left out of a twos game and then rocking up to train, academy train the next day and having to unload a lorry load of plastic seating ahead of a test at Headingley and things like that, you know, they don't sound career defining. But I think one of the big things with mental health is it's not, I don't think it's, it's not for other people to question what your trigger was, if you know what I mean. Mm. His story is far more about the impact it had on him than, why it got to that point. Obviously, it's so whether that was the moment that being dropped and having to and doing all this and having to carry and you know after having to have the lorry of seats like that's to some people they look at that and say well, you know why did that why did he struggle so much with that that's not really a point and that the point is that he did and 
thereafter, so he got the yips, he was dropping on other 19s, which had been a massive part of his upbringing because he'd been, I think when you're that dominant kid as well, you're never used to, all you know is dominating, isn't it? When you're, and this is the same in any sport, when you, when you are the, one of the biggest challenges for the guys that made their debuts in the Bob Willis Trophy last year was that you, you go from being the best player in academy, in academy cricket, bowling 80 mile an hour bouncers at kids, your age, and suddenly bowling 80 mile an hour bouncer at Alistair Cook and he pulls you out of Hove, or he pulls you out of Chelmsford. Like it's, one of the biggest things that we don't talk about enough in sport is how many great athletes, especially even better than Broadhurst was, but someone like Michael Clark did not handle being dropped because mm. he'd never had to even think about the thought of ever having to yeah. be dropped. The same way that, you know, LeBron James went from being loved to being hated and they don't really handle these things correctly. And you see these yeah. athletes do it over and over again. So you could see his whole identity was being a 16-year-old Yorkshire cricketer, was dominating for England under-19s against the best junior players in the world. And then they've dropped him from the second 11 team. Then they've tried to punish him because they want to toughen him up. He then gets the yips and it just keeps unraveling for him. I mean, the interesting thing about him is that he doesn't really walk away. He keeps going. So he goes back to knots while he still has the yips. Yeah. So he goes to knots and it was one of those, you can still get stories like this now. I mean, not to this extent, but where players are signed on potential and the players are signed on the basis of their high ceiling. Mm. I think, and, you know, that's still, and that's not a bad thing because people recognize potential and, and they know if they can be the guy that gets it, that sort of rediscovers it in you, then they know they've got a real diamond on their hands. And so yeah, I think tough love, as you said, is certainly one way that um, that Mark puts it to me, sort of the whole experience at Yorkshire. And he, and he wasn't, the two didn't marry up, the kid he was and the the tough love he, he had and some of the incidents he talks about as well that had, a, had an effect on him. And then, um, I mean, I've had the itch myself. I mean, I was never a professional cricketer, but I, I bowled left arm wrist spin as a, says that to that well I still do, but I, I pretty well until so about 15, 16. I remember bowling balls backward point out of the blue, everyone laughing about it, it never happened before. It just fell out my hand. But then every single time since this is over what eight years, I still play not eight years, ten years. I still play every week for my club now as a batter, so I just can't bowl. But every time I'm at the crease rate to bowl, all I've got in my head is what if it goes over there again? And I spoke to someone who a former player who'd been through it who doesn't even use the Y word because the Y word is gets it into his head that it's there. Otherwise, he can sort of cope with it. So he talks about it. He describes it as a paralysis, as like a bereavement, losing your losing your. But this is the other thing. Like for me, that was a kid. Bit of a shame that you know I, I love bowling, but but it's a bit of a shame. And you know, eventually get over it. I, was I going to be a professional cricketer? Almost certainly not. But when you are a professional cricketer and you are a bowler and you forget how to bowl, because that is effectively what it is. Then what are you? And if we go back to what we were talking about with Barney earlier, if you are a professional cricketer who forgets how to bowl who has left school at 16 to play professional cricket, you are a bowler who can't bowl, who has no other qualifications. So he joins Notts, spends some time at Nottinghamshire because he's, by all accounts, very quick, swung it away. Massive upside to Notts and latterly Kent getting him right and formerly Yorkshire as well because they all know they've got this diamond here. And, but so he goes, he gets released by Yorkshire because... There's no blame attached there. They just couldn't wait any longer. And that's what he said. And, and a month later, he's dealing with frozen chickens in a, in a, in a warehouse on £5 an hour. And that's, that's how brutal and ruthless it is, isn't it? That you suddenly, you've gone from being this guy who was the next big thing. Ben Chappell was, he spoke really highly of Darren Goff um, at Yorkshire and, and a few of the other, and he spoke really highly of a few of the other guys at Yorkshire as well. Who, you know, who, and he enjoyed playing that first team as well. It was the second team where he struggled, where he found there was more animosity and a less healthy culture, certainly for a young player coming in. 
uh, you told me a story about sort of how he'd been given a, a sponsored car and, how, and on the back of being a kid with a sponsored car and experienced second team that there was a lot of tension off the back of that and but yeah so he, he leaves not ends up in this warehouse and really struggled with mental health for about well but i think between 94 leaving yorkshire and getting the ips and and 2001 which is when he really sought help so he left kent depressed you know really really dark spot i think he'd been on he joined kent and then left them shortly after just because he that, at that point he realized he couldn't go on with it he couldn't he knew he wasn't mentally well enough to carry on and John Wright, the old New Zealander, who who was the coach at the time, so he'd signed him on that same premise that you know what if we can, he'd been spotted playing for Barnsley in club cricket by someone like Kent, come down to Kent, and they once again recognised the upside of signing him. And Mark told Mark remembers, I think when he retired, when he when he when he retires, John Wright saying to him, you know, that he'd never seen a, such naturally gifted fast bowler as he was, and that's right at the turn of the millennium when. Obviously, mental health and sport and elite sport wasn't where it is now. And certainly in terms of talking about it openly, but also probably more importantly in his case, in terms of understanding it and dealing with it and giving people the right sort of direction. Kent helped him with counselling and a couple of years afterwards, he, he went and got medical help. And from that point, he was sort of able to begin rebuilding his life, but it was still something he never talked about. But, you know, he's been, he's faced you know, trouble with illness in, in the interim and I think in 2010, he moved to Canada, and that was born out of just wanting to escape. He's worked in IT for the last 20 years. He's very successful in, in what he does now, and but he he moved to Canada to escape cricket, and that's the saddest part of it, isn't it? That this guy who was 10 or 15 years earlier, the next big thing, mm. and everyone I spoke to who played in that England under 19 side echoed that. You know, there's some guy who's looking back at his sort of teenage self, wondering, you know, sort of creating delusions of grandeur about his ability. But this is what everyone was. So, you know, he was the real deal. And so to go from that to fleeing the game as he did is, yeah, really sad. But with an uplifting end, which is that he's got two kids and he's married and the kids play cricket and he's taken them down to local clubs and and he's back watching cricket and he's he's very big on Facebook, engaging with his former cricket people, former teammates, former colleagues, friends. And yeah, so there's a light at the end of the tunnel, I guess. But it's a pretty brutal journey to, to that point. It's really interesting, you know, looking back on everything we've talked about, the fact that, and I think you brought it up earlier, was that he read the Barney Gibson story and he saw that. And yet his story is, I mean, Barney's story turns from, you could say maybe seven years of his life between the age of 12 and 19, he was probably not always the happiest kid. And then quite quickly, he almost flicks a switch and goes, all right, I'm going to go do this. And I've found something I do love. This is what I think is really interesting about Barney is that there's no point, I don't think, between 12 and 25 where he's now, or 26, I wanted to. I don't think there's a point between those two ages where he's not happy. Mm. You know, it's almost a different kind of happiness. So say you sort of go from, I think he loved something and then that was all, he, was all he'd experienced. And it's like those um, with football, and you get with cricket, you get in cast cricket as well, guys who only, have, you know, you're one club men kind of thing, who if it's all you know, it's not like Steven Gerrard, it was all he knew at Liverpool. And then you go away to LA and he has a lovely time in LA for a few years. And then he comes back as, as you do. But, you know, guys like Paul Collingwood, who played for Durham all, all his life and is now involved with England rather than staying on becoming Durham's head coach or something. Like, I, I think he loved it as much as he could love it, knowing only that, from knowing only, only that kind of lifestyle. I don't think there's any part of him that regrets any of that, you know, that regrets the, the time he spent in that system. Certainly, I think he just found a different kind of happiness, if that's the right way of phrasing it, rather than becoming happy. Yeah. And so with Mark, Mark almost had to run away to find his happiness. 
yeah, I think the devastation that cricket had caused. And I think perhaps say love's very close to hate, don't they? So if that's the case and you've grown up loving it and you've grown up being brilliant at it and you're a raw, innocent kid, and if you go from that to where he became, I think he moved kind of to escape that sort of the devastation and the ruin that cricket had left imprinted on him. You know, he could no longer bowl. You know, I remember one thing that you mentioned, and actually, as I say, having had the itch myself, I've spoken to a few people in club cricket about this and and former pros. Now, I really struggled with this, actually. And as I say, I was a much lower level to what we're talking here. But um, going back to club cricket with the itch is brutal. And for pro, even more so. Because I remember going to a ground where I'd taken a six for the previous year, my club, and rocking up, being like, oh, I've, I remember this place, this is good. Took six for a clean them up. They know I can bowl. The opposition know I can play. And then I rocked up and was bowling balls over the keeper's head with bowling balls that bounce twice. And everyone's looking. No one on your team says a word. They don't know what to say. Mm. And certainly the opposition don't know what's going on. But then you remember that's, that's one of the easier days, the harder days when you rock up against new teams and you come on to bowl at 20 for three and you're on top and your opening bowlers done a really good job and you'll play a bunch of guys who've never seen you before, the ground you've never played at before. And you go dull bouncer, dull bouncer, ball over the head, wide, wide, full toss, four runs, six runs, whatever. And subconsciously, or even actually consciously as a human, is human nature to be standing there thinking, God, what does everyone else think of me? And at least when I'm playing Uxbridge away, as it was in the case where I'm taking six for, at least they know I can play. But if I'm rocking up playing total strangers, they're thinking, who is this guy? And are they, you know, are they taking the piss? And that's me on a, on a level where I was a pretty decent teenage bowler. But if you're a professional cricketer, to go from the level where you had county players jumping, you had... You'd grown up playing against guys like, you know, say Gilchrist, Vars, Astle, Vittori, etc. To go from that to rocking up in club cricket and not know if you can hit the cut strip. And then, I remember him saying to me, the thing he found hardest was that the guys who would previously have backed away to squelling against him were getting in line, pulling off the front foot, you know, playing him easily. And so it's almost like you're not the same person. Let's say I can only speak from the experience of a little teenage aspiring leg spinner, but to have that situation hit you when you've been paid to do this. There are, you know, there are stories of guys who've been paid pros. I don't think, I don't think I'm not sure this is the case with Mark, but I've certainly spoken to players, who, to, to former pros who were, who were being paid as, you know, to play for their clubs, but had the yips and they were rocking up bowling 15 ball overs as, as the paid pro. And mentally what that does to you, knowing that everyone's looking on, or asking what the hell's going on, what they're getting for their money, that must be a pretty unpleasant and really... Yeah, a really tough thing to deal with. I think that's a massive part of it for Mark. And actually, one of, the, one of his biggest regrets is continuing to play cricket. Looking back now, wishes he'd stopped after oh, either Yorkshire or not, one of the two. Either in 94 or 96, he reckons he should have gone, look, it's not working. Move on with my life, find something else. But actually, the suffering continued because he kept himself in cricket, because that was what he knew. And it's, um, that goes back to the, the qualifications and the, the identity thing. Like if, that's, if you are a cricketer, what, what are you when you aren't a cricketer? So he actually, he ended up doing a course, a typing course back in the late 90s or 80,000s that got him into IT, which is where he's been ever since. But until that point, say sort of, what are you if you are a cricketer, but you aren't a cricketer and you can no longer do your main skill? His story's not unique. No. Certainly the bits around it, you know, the, the battles with illness, the, perhaps the core, perhaps what he think, what he traces about the cause as, you know, perhaps that is unique, but actually there is a wider, not universal, but quite a, but a wider, really difficult stories be told of, of that path that, that he went down? Yeah, I mean, having dealt with a lot of cricketers as they've transitioned out of the game, mm. 
it's one of the most binary things of all time. You're either a professional athlete or you're not a professional athlete and they don't. Yeah. It just, it is what it is. But thank you mm. very much for coming on the podcast. No worries at all. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to Red Inca. There is more information on my guests available in the show notes, including their Twitter profiles, if they have one. This is the important bit, though. Please review on Apple Podcasts or anywhere, really. Share it on all the social medias and just get it out there. If you can, act it out in plays on your balcony with your loved ones. This podcast is made possible by the people who support us at Patreon, so thanks to those who already do. And there is a link to Patreon in the show notes as well. Red Inca is made by me, Jared Kimber. Nick McCorriston makes everything sound better for your ears, and the theme tune is called The Prisoner by the Red Crickets. <laughs>